Welcome to Free Christian Church of God's Audio Outreach Ministries. For more information regarding the Audio Outreach Ministries or to order past messages, please contact the church office at area code 419-596-3103 or visit our website at www.freecog.org. And now, here's Reverend James Fry with today's message. 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're just going to read one verse today. Uh, we're going to read many verses, but this is the verse we're going to start with. 2 Samuel 11, verse 5. When you get there, you can stand to your feet, either that or you can just stand to your feet and read it off of the screen with me when we get there. Lift your Bibles in the air. Say it along with me. Good lad, I want to hear it from your heart today, okay? Right from all that turkey and dressing, all that you get down there, just push it right on up out of your voice. This is my Bible. It's God's infallible word. I am who it says I am. I have what it says I have, and I can do what it says I can do. Today, I'll be taught the word of God. I'm about to receive the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living seed of the Word of God. My mind is alert, my heart is receptive, and I will never be the same in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. 2 Samuel 11, verse 5. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. God, I pray for your anointing over this word today. God, I know this message is from you, and Lord, I know it is for the church to hear. God, you know where all of us are. You know what we're dealing with. You, you know our secrets. You, you know our thoughts. You know everything about us there is to know. And God, I pray that you'll speak to us where we're living. God, that we will hear from your Holy Spirit, that we'll hear from your word, the, what we need to hear today. God, that your word might transform us. Transform us by the renewing of our mind and our thoughts, our approach and our objective in life. Father, I thank you for what you're going to do in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. I fixed it. All right. Most likely, there's been a moment when you've heard a single sentence that has changed your life. Maybe it was a doctor telling you that you have cancer, or maybe it was a phone call informing you that somebody you love has died. You've heard a life-altering sentence. There's been an accident. I want a divorce. You're fired. It was only a few short words, but when you heard those words from that moment forward, your life changed completely. 27 years ago, I came home from a General Assembly meeting. It was before the days of cell phones where we're always in touch and we always know what's going on. So I had no clue as to what I was walking into. When I arrived at my house, my driveway was full of cars. Curious and a bit confused, I walked inside. And as I entered the house, Lisa came walking toward me with tears in her eyes. And she said to me, Eddie died. I'll never forget those words. I'll never forget where I was. I'll never forget what it looked like. My oldest brother, 54 years young, had suddenly died of an aortic aneurysm. I wasn't prepared for what I just heard. My big brother, my mentor, my friend had passed away. I didn't even have a chance to speak to him. I wasn't able to say, tell him goodbye. 
My heart sank. My mind raced in every direction, trying to make sense of her words. <coughs> Excuse me. I needed an explanation. I needed a reason, some kind of justification for what had happened, but there was none. My brother had passed away. One sentence can change your life forever, even though it's just a few words. They're life-altering words. They're life-shattering words. In one sentence, King David's entire life changed. In one sentence, how people would perceive him changed. What David thought about himself, his plans for the future, his hopes and his dreams, all changed because of the impact of one sentence in his life. Bathsheba said, I am with child. Until this point, David was convinced that he was in total control. He was a conquering hero, and he was a great king. Ever since he was a young man, he had been celebrated and admired. But there was another side to David that nobody knew about. There was another side to David that his admirers were unaware of. There was a side to him that those who wished to emulate him knew nothing about. David became a master manipulator, a great illusionist. He had always been able to hide his flaws and continue with his work, and nobody was the wiser. But David had a problem. He had a personal struggle with an unseen enemy that he did battle with nearly every day of his life. There was a war going on in his mind that tormented his soul and was about to take over his life. David had everything that a man could desire. He was famous and rich and powerful and popular. Everyone wanted to be like him and they wanted to be near him. But in one sentence, everything changed and David's perfect life came crashing down around him. No one falls further or faster than a hero. Those who are at their highest when they fall always fall the furthest. And their descent is often with lightning speed. They fall from being a prominent businessman to being a convicted felon. They fall from being a respected leader to despise nobody. They fall from being a celebrity to being scorned by society. We see it over and over again. Nearly every week somebody is in the news. Their secret sin has been exposed. Their mistakes have been made public knowledge and they've fallen from the top of the world to the lowest place that a man or a woman could ever go. Well, he has a problem with alcohol that nobody knew about. She was doing drugs and nobody was aware. His wife caught him on the internet and he was looking at porn. Their sin has been exposed. It's not only ruined their life, but it's also affected the people around them. Their marriage is on the rocks, their family's a mess, and their friends are all gone. There's nobody to talk to, nobody wants to help, and they find themselves utterly alone in their brokenness. But there's the question, how did they get there? As far as we knew, he wasn't an evil man. As far as we knew, she wasn't a terrible person. So how did this happen? Please listen to this scripture. Romans 1.28 says, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over. Our mind is an unseen battleground. Nobody else knows the thoughts and the temptations that we battle with. If we wore our thoughts on the outside where other people could view them, we would most likely do a lot better job and we would immediately seek God's help for our weaknesses. If we were trusting enough to be open about our struggles, 
If we were sure that the people who say that they love us were merciful enough and compassionate enough to help us instead of judging us, we could ask for help. But we trust no one enough to bear our soul and seek the help that we so desperately need. We carry our burden alone. We become an expert at making everything on the outside appear to be perfect while on the inside we're in torment. We become as good of a manipulator as King David was. Salvation goes much deeper than simply confessing our sins and asking God to forgive us. True salvation is a transformation. It's the old self being put to death so the new man or new woman can live. You will never be a new you until the old you ceases to exist. That's why in Romans 12, 1 and 2, God commands those of us who know him to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're not only to surrender to God our past and our sins, but we are to change how we think. Our old conscience must be destroyed so that our new conscience can have the mind of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the command. But where's the how-to? Where's the how-to? We know what God wants, but how do we get there? What do we do to end this battle? Do we pray harder? Do we read our Bible more? Do we attend church more often? Do we discipline ourselves more? How do we get there? Please listen. You cannot transform your own mind. You've tried and you've failed. You've told yourself that you'll do better. You're, you're going to do things right. You're not going to sin that sin anymore. But you failed again and again and again. Nothing that you have tried has worked. You put your old nature down, but then it rises up again. And try as you may, you can't transform your own mind. But that's what we do. That's what we do. Some people are convinced that as long as they look good on the outside, there's no need to change for a change in their mind. They'll just live with their thoughts. They'll try to control the battle that's raging on the inside, and they won't allow it to get too far out of hand, and nobody will ever need to know. But when we refuse to bring our mind into subjection to God, when we convince ourselves that Jesus can be the Lord of our life without being the Lord of our thoughts, a very dangerous precedent is set. When we refuse to submit our mind to God and we continue to do things our way, there will come a day when God will say to us, fine, then have it your way. He'll allow us to go it alone. He'll let us uh, let go of us. He'll give to us the control that we think we want. He'll surrender us to the lusts and the passions that manipulate our mind and drive our flesh and give to us what our old nature demands. When we justify our sins, we make room in our thoughts for things that should not be in our thoughts. When we push the conscience of the Holy Spirit out of our mind and refuse to bring our thoughts into subjection to God, God will sometimes just choose to give us over. That's a scary thought. That's a scary thought. Romans 1 says that God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. When our mind is free of a godly conscience, we begin to do what ought not to be done. And eventually we will become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Sin that isn't dealt with will fester and grow until it eventually overpowers us and takes over. What we once controlled will control us. It will consume our thoughts and ultimately take over our behavior. 
we need to come to grips today with a very sobering reality. In the heart of every man and every woman, every problem is present. Every kind of need, every kind of weakness, every kind of struggle, every kind of sin, we need to acknowledge this because we have to confront those problems and those weaknesses. We have to confront ourselves about what we hold on the inside. Until we submit our mind to Jesus Christ, nothing will ever change. When a man or a woman ignores the commandments of God and refuses to turn fully to God as the Lord of their life, the worst punishment that God will give to that man or woman is to turn them over to themselves. As God's restraining grace is taken away, a man becomes freer to disobey God and to sin like never before. But what he perceives as freedom isn't freedom at all, but it's the most insidious trap that he'll ever fall into, and it will lead him to his greatest bondage. No punishment could be worse than to have you deal with you. No prison, no jail cell, no torture is effective as letting a man deal with his own conscience. You can hide from the public. You can do, you can avoid people, but there is nowhere that you can go to get away from your guilty conscience. It'll follow you everywhere. It'll harass you through the day and interrupt your dreams at night. I asked the doctor years ago, I said, doctor, where is the conscience? Where is the conscience? I mean, if we could find where, where the guilty conscience is, you could perform surgery, do a guilty conscience ectomy, 2,000 down, and let the insurance company take care of the rest. We don't know where it is, but it's there. As a pastor, I've always been amazed at how we can look at another man and arrogantly say, I'm better than that person. I'm not talking about racial or social distinctions, but I'm talking about the distinctions that we make about another person's sin. How can we say that one man's sin is worse than another man's sin? How can we say that one man's sin is worse than our own sin? How can any saint of God who has been redeemed from the curse by the blood of Jesus and who knows their Bible sit in judgment of anyone else's sin? All sins are against God, and every sin is equal in God's sight. A sinner is a sinner, and all sin requires the same price. As Jesus told those at the temple, who are condemning a woman to death for her sin, he said, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. We have to be very careful about this, especially in God's church. Sometimes good church people reject, will reject somebody because there is a sin in their life. Oh, we can't let him participate because he's done this, or we can't let her get involved because she was caught doing this. Even though they have repented of their sin, they have turned to God for help, and their sin has been put under the blood of Jesus, we act as though our standard of righteousness is just a little bit higher than God's. Jesus paid the price for sin. If somebody has repented and God has forgiven them, who are we to still hold their sin over their head? If Jesus died to save them from hell, who are we to push them in? You and I have no authority to say the blood of Jesus didn't work on you. When we claim, we make a claim that we're not as sinful as the next person. We're in effect claiming that our sin isn't as bad as their sin. The man or woman that draws a conclusion like that doesn't know the Bible because the Bible says all have sinned. All have sinned. What does all mean, church? 
All, all means all, and that's all all means. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all guilty. We will all be judged. We are all deserving of hell. We are all sinners who desperately need the grace of God and the blood of Jesus to be saved. There aren't good sins and bad sins. Sin is sin. Whether you're an adulterer or a liar, sin is sin. Whether you're a drunk or abusive to your spouse, sin is sin. Whether you're lazy at work or you cheat on your income taxes, sin is sin. Whether you've committed a crime or you're a gossip, sin is sin. But I want you to know that whether your sin is public knowledge or your sin is just in your mind, you are just as guilty in the sight of God. Ooh. What did Jesus say? In Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Yeah. Amen to that. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do I need to read that verse again? The truth of the matter is, the capacity for every type of sin resides in every one of us. We may not have done it, but chances are we thought about doing it. And we've already sinned in our mind. There are many things in our imaginations that we don't talk about. There are thoughts that run through our mind in the middle of the night. Thoughts that come upon us when we're alone or when we're away from home. There are temptations that we wrestle with while we're on the job or we're at our computer. And in God's eyes, one sin is no different than another. Even if you haven't made any plans, given the right situation or the right circumstances, you are capable of committing every sin in the book. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. I pastored a long time. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, no, pastor, there are some things that I would never do. I'd never do what he did. I'd never do what she did. The Word of God teaches us that in our human nature, we are totally depraved. Do you understand what that means? You are not salvageable on your own. We are totally depraved. We all have an equal capacity for sin, and we each must face that capacity that exists within us. That's why we have to confront our sin nature and crucify our flesh and fully submit our mind to Christ. If you refuse to confront your own capacity for sin, you're going to become a well-marked target for the devil. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the confession, I, I can't believe I did that. Somebody will be sitting in my office, they'll be in tears, they will have been caught or, or whatever, and they say, Pastor, why did I do that? You never thought that you would, but you did. When you get home today, look at yourself in the mirror and admit to yourself, I could commit every sin in the book. I'm capable of lying and cheating and stealing. I'm capable of murder and adultery and child abuse and assault and I need something in me that is greater than my capacity for sin. I need a power in me that's greater than my flesh. I need a power in me that is greater than me. You see, the real problem is the problem behind your problem, and that is your sin nature that still reigns in your mind. Are you hearing the word of God today? Your sin nature will cause you to want to do what the devil tells you to do more than you want to do what God tells you to do. It's a mental struggle, and every man and woman faces it. So if you're wrestling with it today, understand you're not alone. You're, you're no more weak or no more unstable than anybody else. This is where David found himself. I want to interject something here. 
David was a good man, and David was a godly man. <gasps> Do you remember David as a young man singing and dancing before the Lord and how pleased God was with him? Do you remember David's faith when he stood up to Goliath and, and his army? Do you, you understand that David wrote 75 of the Psalms in the Bible? We often think that if somebody falls from grace, it's because they've been a fake and their Christianity was never real. But God's trying to show us something here. David was a good man and he was a godly man. Acts 13, 22, quoting 1 Samuel 13 says, he, meaning God, God raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave their testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. And God knows everything. David was a good man. And he was a godly man, and he had a great, God had a great plan for his life, but David got careless. Listen to me here. David got careless. He got lazy. He let down his guard, and he found it no longer worthwhile to keep his mind holy. If the devil's going to get to you, the first place he's going to attack is right between your ears. Satan is an omniscient. He doesn't know all as God knows all. Don't give the devil more credit than he deserves. He's not as informed as God is, but he's limited in his knowledge. The devil might know about you, but he doesn't know you like God knows you. The devil might have a general opinion of you, but God knows the number of hairs on your head. Satan doesn't know everything. So he will fish for your weakness. The devil will try one lure after another, and he'll cast them out in front of you until he sees that sparkle in your eyes, and then he knows what might work on you. Now, he can't catch all of us on the same bait. What tempts you may not tempt me. What tempts me may not tempt you. What might attract one person might seem repulsive to another, but the devil will keep fishing until he finds something that catches your eye. But know this, you will bite on something. You will bite on something. It might not be the same thing that the people you're judging have bitten on, but you will bite on some, something. Satan found David's weakness. He knew David's father. He knew David's brothers. He knew David's past. So he had some idea of what might work to hook him and to pull him away from the will of God. We sometimes mistakenly think that if someone falls over sin, that they must have been a fraud or a hypocrite. Now, sometimes that is true. That is true. But that's not always the case. David was a good man. Good men are capable of sin. Good women are capable of sin. Good teenagers who have their act together, who want to live for God, are still capable of sin. David was a good man. He was a man after God's own heart. He was creative and strong and courageous. He was a man of talent and a man of music. He was a natural-born leader, but David had a generational curse on his life. David had a problem with lust. It wasn't a sex problem as some have been led to believe. But David's problem was his lust for something else. No different than Eve in the garden, David found an allure in the things that he didn't have. He'd never have enough because there was always an allure in what he couldn't have. There was a rush in pursuing those things. David felt a high when he was seeking what he didn't have. There was a thrill in the hunt. You know what I'm talking about? When do we seek highs? When do we seek highs? When do we seek for these things? We seek for them when we become inactive. And we find ourselves bored 
with life. You ever go to a nursing home and watch old folks who they can't get out anymore, they can't get around, but they're sitting in a wheelchair and they're talking to each other about what hurts? Yeah, my, my leg, yeah, I got that too. Yeah, but I got both legs, I got both legs in my back. You know, that's all they got to think about. My grandma, grandma used to say, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And I believe that, that grandma was right. Every life needs a purpose. Every life needs a purpose. If you're living and breathing, you have to have a purpose. You can't sit and do nothing. You can't take yourself out of the grain. Because my grandma also used to say, you're not just here to take up space. Too bad grandma wasn't living when the Bible was being written. I'm sure she would have had her own book. It would have been Agnes chapter 1, you know. I want to clear something up here. David didn't commit adultery because Bathsheba was so hot. How often have you heard, why would he leave his wife for her? Why would she leave her husband for that? It's not what David had that turned him from God. It's what he didn't have or what he thought that he couldn't have that tempted him. Bathsheba was the forbidden fruit. She might have been uglier than a mud rail fence. We'll interpret that for you folks over here later. You teen, what is he talking about? Another one of them old man quotes again. David was a king, and he lived in a palace, but it wasn't the things that he possessed that caused him to stumble, but it was the one thing that he thought he couldn't have, the one thing that he knew he shouldn't have. Is this making sense to you? How many people do we see that we think they have everything? They have money and fame and popularity. Everybody loves them, and they go out and do something stupid. I'm sure that as David sat idle, doing nothing, not serving his purpose, thoughts of Bathsheba began to run through his mind. The battle that David was fighting was in his head. It was in his mind, in his heart. Satan knew David's weakness. But before he could be effective, David had to become vulnerable. He needed to get David comfortable and careless so he would let down his guard. David had always been a man of action. He had slain lions and bears. He had defeated giants and taken down armies. To do such things, his senses had to be sharp. He always had to have his wits about him. He was keyed up, and he was on guard. So in order to get David, Satan knew that he had to get him away from the battleground. He had to get David to lay down his weapons. As a child of God, you're in a battle. The Bible tells you that you are. You're in a war, and you are a soldier. You can't dodge the draft. You can't choose to sit out because people are depending on you to survive. And God has given you orders. But David got careless. Instead of doing what he knew he should be doing, instead of fighting in the battle with his soldiers, David took himself out of the war, and in his inactivity, he allowed his thoughts to get the better of him. I'm going to ask you this morning, what should you be doing? What is your purpose? Where should you be serving? What is your responsibility on the battlefield? I don't care how old you are. You cannot retire. You cannot quit. If God gave you an ability and he gave you a talent, he gave it to you to use for his glory and to build his kingdom. You have not done it so long that you can go, hey, I'm going to let somebody else do it now. Some of you older people say amen there because I'm talking to you. You know, I tell the church, I said, I'm, I'm retiring, but I'm not quitting. I'm not quitting. If you need me to play key, I'll play the keyboard. I can do that with both eyes tied behind my back. <laughs> I can do it without thinking. Matter of fact, I do a lot of things without thinking. 
If you need me to preach, I'll preach. If you want me to teach, as long as the head works, I'm going to teach. I'm not quitting. I'm not quitting. Time is too short. The kingdom is coming. People need to be saved. I can't set out. Because when you start sitting out, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get in trouble. You're going to get in trouble. You, 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 can, you can't go, oh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just retiring. I'm going to sit in a recliner and yell at the TV. No. All right, where was I? <laughs> Instead of fighting, David took himself out of the war. And in his inactivity, he became bored, and he walked on his rooftop while Bathsheba bathed on hers. You know, your first encounter with a particular sin might be purely accidental. Satan might be floating a lure by you. you. You may have been in the wrong place at the wrong time, but when you look at your watch and you go to that same place the next time, you are there on purpose. It is a planned rendezvous with sin. David knew that Bathsheba was there, and she knew that David was watching. It takes two to tango. Nowadays, they would have just hung David and called her a victim, and she would have sued him and took half his kingdom. I have a different opinion on some of the news items today. They had synchronized their schedules, and Satan had David right where he wanted him, and then Satan set the hook. The Bible says that David sent for her. It's one thing to have temptation call out to you, but it's quite another for you to make the call. David sent for her. The first time it was probably awkward, and then David sent for her the second time, and the third time, again and again, until it became easy, and he became addicted. He was hooked. He couldn't get away. How easy has your sin become? That sin that you were controlling? That one that you had the power over that you weren't going to let anybody know about? How easy has it become? How many times have you pushed the Holy Spirit out of your mind and justified what you do? How natural have your habits developed that it no longer takes a great effort for the devil to entrap you? How far has your mind moved from the mind of God? Is it moved far enough that you're starting to get sloppy? James 1 says, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. But every man is tempted when? When he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed. And then when the lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. What a price to pay. There are often times when I see somebody who's fallen and I wonder, was it worth it? Was it worth it? It's cost you your marriage, it's cost you your relationship with your children, it's cost you your job, it's cost you friendships and relationships. Was it worth it? I want you to know, it never is. It never is. 2 Samuel eleven five says, Bathsheba became pregnant, the lust had conceived, and she spoke to David one sentence that changed his entire life. I am with child. David was now in deep. The hero had fallen, but instead of confessing his sin, David tried to be the master illusionist and cover his tracks. He made the same mistake that a lot of people make. David tried to control his sin. He ordered Bathsheba's husband that he be brought home from the battle. But Uriah was more godly than David, and he said, I can't come home, I need to be in the battle. But David brought him home anyway, hoping that he'd go home to his wife and the world would believe that this child was his. But still Uriah refused to go home because his new, he knew his responsibility was still on the battlefield. When David realized he couldn't control his sin, he tried to hide his sin. The Bible says he got Uriah drunk, and he tried to bait him into going home to be with his wife. But still, even drunk, Uriah knew better. 
When nothing else worked in his frustration, then David tried to bury his sin. He ordered that Uriah be put on the front line of battle and that the troops withdraw from around him. David's laziness turned to lust, his lust turned to adultery, his adultery turned to lying, and lying turned to murder. You may think that you have your sin under your control, but someday it's going to kill somebody because the wages of sin is death. David had covered his tracks. Now Bathsheba could be his wife, the baby could be born legitimately, and nobody would have to know, but David couldn't shake his guilty conscience. When a born-again believer loses control of his thoughts, when the mind of Christ is set aside and the mind of flesh takes over, guilt sets in. One thing that I have learned over my 40-some years of pastoring is how to identify guilt. I have certain things that I'll ask people, and instantly I can see the guilt switch come on then I know I've struck sin. It's easy to find. Psalm 38 is David's prayer during this time. He said, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down on me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. There is no soundness in my bones because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. All my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pounds, my strength fails me, even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. Those who want to kill me set their traps. Those who would harm me talk about my ruin. All the day long they scheme and lie. I'm like the deaf who cannot hear, like the mute who cannot speak. I become like one who does not hear, whose mouth cannot offer a reply. Lord, I wait for you. You will answer, Lord, my God. For I said, do not let them gloat or exalt themselves over me when my feet slip. For I'm about to fall and my pain is ever with me. I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Many have become my enemies without cause. Those who hate me without reason are numerous. Those who repay my good with evil lodge accusations against me, though I seek only to do what is good. Lord, do not forsake me. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly to help me, my Lord and my Savior. Wow, what a prayer. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins. That's not just saying that out loud. That's taking the guilt. It's my fault. I did this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful to forgive our sins. But if we ever want to get away from our sin, we have to fully surrender our mind to God. And to do that, we have to take down the strongholds that Satan has built. Some people today call them triggers. Triggers are things that might not be sin in themselves, but they are open doors that lead us to sin. 
we justify keeping our triggers and we still struggle with our sin. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Strongholds are in your mind. Over the course of your life, Satan has built them there. You respond to them in times when you are depressed, in times when you're angry, in times when you're down. You turn into that stronghold. But God has given you the power to take those strongholds down. Only Jesus can transform your mind. You can't do it on your own. You've tried and you failed, but God can do what you're not able to do. Make Jesus the Lord over the stronghold that's been lording over you and then tear it down. God's on your side in this matter. God doesn't want to destroy you. He wants to forgive you. God loves you with an unfathomable love and he wants you to get past your past, to conquer your sin and to become the man or woman that he put you on this earth to be. God has a plan for you. You haven't been perfect, but the truth is you never were. (laughs) People just thought you were. But God wants to perfect you. You might be broken right now, but God wants to fix you. Your enemies might hold it over your head, and your ex-friends might hold it against you, but there's only one judge, and all he wants to do is forgive you and restore you so you can finish the plan that he has for your life. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 says, Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have the divine power to demolish strongholds. Somebody ought to say amen there. Demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. If you're struggling with your thoughts and you know that God isn't in control of your mind, You know that there's a stronghold in your life that needs to come down. Do something about it. Do something about it. Get on your knees today. Confess your sin. Admit that you're not in control and that you don't have the power to do it on your own and ask God to bring that stronghold down. If you're here today and you've already fallen from grace, you haven't been a fake Christian, but you grew complacent and you allowed the enemy to take control of your thoughts, and now you have a mess in your life, I want you to know that God is waiting to fix you. He wants to forgive you and restore you. You're not beyond reach of his grace and mercy. Jesus died to pay for that sin that you've committed, and God still has a great plan for your life. Let's think about this today. God forgave Paul, who murdered Christians for a living. God forgave David for his sin with Bathsheba. Jesus forgave Peter, who denied him three times the night he was before he was crucified as grandma used to say don't throw out the baby with the bathwater." if you're sitting here today with a judgmental attitude if you're looking down your nose at people around you that you feel are not as worthy as you who are more sinful than you if you still consider the sins that other people commit to be worse than your own god help you because god isn't in control of your thoughts either The devil has control of your mind. You push God off of his throne, and you've established yourself as the judge. The day may come when you too will fall, and I pray that other people will show more mercy to you than you've shown to them. There's just one more thing. The curse needs to stop with you. It's up to you to bring down the stronghold of that generational curse that has been passed through your family. It might be a stronghold of lying, 
It might be a stronghold of alcoholism. It might be a stronghold of immorality. It might be a stronghold of abusiveness. Whatever it is, it needs to come down today. Today. The curse may have been passed down to you, but it's up to you to turn that curse into a blessing for your children. Bring down that stronghold so your children and your grandchildren don't have to fight what you've been fighting. End it with you. Surrender your mind fully to God. Put your armor on. Pick up your weapons and step back into the battle. Bring down the stronghold so others can be free. Bring down the stronghold that makes Jesus the Lord of your mind and the Lord of your thoughts. But today's the day to do it. The war is in your mind. You can fix up the outside and fool everybody. But until Jesus becomes the Lord of your thoughts, he can never be the Lord of your life. Father, I thank you today for your word and God, what it teaches. God, Lord, you speak to us practically right where we live. God, the Bible might be old, but it is not out of date. And God, I pray today that you will finish the work that your Holy Spirit is speaking to the hearts of people. God, we need to respond to this. It's one thing to hear it and shout amen and praise the Lord, but God, until we rise up and respond to it, it's not going to do us any good. God, strongholds need to come down today. Forgiveness needs to be found today. Repentance needs to be given today. Confession of our sins needs to be done today. Father, it's about your grace, your love, and your mercy. And Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, that we will see your will done here in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to Reverend James Fry from Free Christian Church of God in Continental Ohio. We hope you have enjoyed today's message, and we would like to invite you to visit us next Sunday morning. Our Sunday morning services begin with Sunday school at 9.30, followed by the worship service at 10.30. Free Christian Church of God is located on the corner of State Route 15 and State Route 634, just north of Continental. For more information regarding this or other ministries, call the church office at area code 419-596-3103 or visit our website at www.freecog.org. This has been a Free Christian Church of God audio outreach ministries production. 